Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Impact of influence. The Murdoch family murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family. The mysterious deaths they are linked to. And our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. So grateful you're spending time with us. Always appreciate it. Make sure you give us a follow. Make sure you share the episode and just keep on commenting and rating. It's uh, much appreciated. Seton Tucker and Matt Harris here, and you can go to Murdoch Podcast on Facebook or Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com if you have comments uh, about the show or questions. Always appreciate them, even if you say we suck. Uh, let's begin with uh, Fitz News and the uh, Will Folks and Jen Wood and all the things that they are talking about recently. Yeah, Jen Wood did kind of a deep dive into the money question. Where did the money go? That's a huge question for everyone. And she has come up with a few connections to gambling. So it's a question of whether gambling could have played a factor into where all this missing money is. And we have we have talked about that before. We did when we were talking about Jerry Rivers. Remember, Rivers Roberts. It always gets me confused. But Jerry Rivers uh, is going to court on August 28th. One kind of obstruction of justice after allegedly committing, in, quote, an act which prevents, obstructs, impedes, or hinders the administration of justice. And he took an item of evidentiary value. This was, if you remember, he took a cell phone. Right. That was plugged in, and then he tried to give him, oh, this is the phone, and it was a different kind of phone. Yeah, I think one was an iPhone, and he tried to give yes. him a flip phone. I don't, I'm not sure exactly, but it was it was clearly not the same phone. Clearly not. And so where that happened was, was a gambling den, and that's where Rivers and Roberts are tied to, which when Creighton Waters is saying those two guys are involved with Murdoch somehow, because he said downstream, he talked about drugs with with uh, Cousin Eddie. But as Fitz News is saying now, maybe it's not the drug connection. Maybe there's a gambling connection. Right. There's uh, Jerry Rivers was facing five charges in relation to this gambling. So that does make you question, there's no real solid evidence in this, but that there could be some sort of gambling connection. And there's connection, some sort of very maybe loose connection, but maybe a connection to the the gang that we've talked about before. I'm not saying these guys are in the gang, but it's all part of that area, which is the uh, Walterboro Cowboys drug crew. So there's been whispers of that. And when we, when this all happened, we're like, where all this money go? Nobody believes he did that much in drugs, right? No. And so, what do people do with ill-gotten gains? They're not giving it to, you know, the sorry mothers of the poor or something. They're doing gambling. They're doing drugs. They're doing women. One of those things. Yes. And so, you know, and Fitz News is trying to piece together the possibilities there. And another thing Jen Wood looked at was the timeline from the day of Maggie and Paul's murders and some telephone calls and text messages. Yes, a couple of names show up, and then she went and researched where they have property. Again, it's in the area 
with Rivers and Roberts and the Cowboys and all that doesn't mean you know they're connected or anything. It's just curious. We don't know if law enforcement even looked into them or if Alex's team looked into them, but they both had calls that were unanswered, maybe a text, and you can listen to the Fitz News pod to find out all about it. But at one point, Murdoch, Alex says to one of the guys that uh, I have uh, a meeting for you for, uh, alone for 1715, and we don't know what that refers to. It was really surprising to me that we haven't heard anything about this. Now let's move to our guest. Uh, we got to know her, you especially, Seton, as we were down at the trial of Alec Murdoch. She is Becky Hill. She is the Colleton County Clerk of Court. This is her first term. It's an elected position. And Becky handled the crowds and all the media that was involved in this. And now she is writing a book about the behind the scenes of the Murdoch trial. And we welcome in Becky Hill. Becky, how are you? Hey, doing great. Thank you. And we should mention that you are recording from Twigs, which is the cutest place in Walterboro. Um, so it I just is. wanted to give them a plug. Oh, thank you. Yes, the two sisters, Jesse and Mandy, they have so many good things. And the coffee shop, too. Yes, I did hit up some coffee before court a few days. <laughs> well, Becky, you're very familiar with Walterboro. You grew up there. Yes. In fact, uh, the story goes that your relatives, you discovered in your research, your relatives were connected with Buster Murdoch, Alex's grandfather, in some sort of illegal activity. Tell me about it. I have discovered that, yes, <laughs> in my research for the book. Um, come to find out, my grandfather and Buster were really good friends, as well as with my grandmother and my uncle as well. Um, in fact, my grandfather had a liquor still for Buster and on the farm that they had. And um, sometime in, I believe, can't remember what month, but in 1956, the liquor still got busted. And that was the big ring with the sheriff involved and Buster and my grandparents. And they did not get indicted, my grandparents, but they did get arrested and then spent a night in jail. But that was it. Well, um, it helps to be friends. Newspaper. It helps to be friends with Buster Murdoch <laughs> if you get arrested. I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. Yes. They were on the right side. Yep. How did you decide to run for clerk of court? And I think, I believe this is your first term. It is. My, I'm three years into my first term. I was a court reporter for the state of South Carolina for 12 years. And it was during COVID was just starting. And uh, Ms. Pat Grant, who was the previous clerk, had announced her retirement that she was not going to be running. And I had talked to Miss Pat. I talked to the judge that I worked with and was looking to stay closer to home. And so I talked to Miss Pat and she kind of talked me into running. Um, she was one of the persons. Another person was a good friend, Melinda from Hampton. And they just encouraged me to put my name on the ballot. And I did. And um, here we are. What's the clerk of court do? What's the responsibilities of uh, the clerk of court? In a, in a Reader's Digest summary, we are the keeper of the record. However, there are so many branches from right. that. We have family court. We have circuit court, which is common pleas and general sessions court. We are a liaison between the judges, lawyers, 
than the people that they represent. We also have a passport service, which is huge in our courthouse. Now, our courthouse does house the solicitor's office for the 14th Circuit here in Colleton. So we do have uh, our solicitors here. The public defenders are down the street in their own office. But we have a lot of um, people coming in and out every day. We are a service-oriented governmental building agency where we want to be of service to the people that come in for whatever reason to our courthouse. Coming to court is not a very pleasant experience. No. When people get a summons, um, that is the one thing that they hate to see the mail the most. But we try to make that experience even not as bad as it, as it should be or could be. Um, I just, I really believe greatly and highly in, in jury service. I think everybody should do it at least once. Um, so the clerk of court just does such a variety of things, but I think at the, the bottom part of it for here, us here in Colleton County is treat people with kindness, uh, listen to what they have to say and try to help them in the best way possible. Well, you handled these incoming crowds like you're a pro. They, I would never have believed this was your first term as a clerk of court. Were you ever well, flustered you. during this process? Well, I was. I was. <laughs> Behind closed doors, I was. Yeah. Um, the media were wonderful. Podcasters were wonderful. Mm. Um, visitors mainly were wonderful. I only had one person and she was a local who we had to put her on probation and she couldn't come back in for three days. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh wow. What did she do? <laughs> well, she used profanity at one mm-hmm. of my bailiffs who was seating people in the courtroom. Uh, we just can't tolerate that. Right, right. Is there any other yeah. crowd stories uh, from the Murdoch trial? Oh, we have a lot of crowd stories, and a lot of that will be in my book as well. But let's see what I could share with you. We had a young man from North Carolina come one day who said that he was very familiar with um, Mr. Alec Murdoch and had seen him when he was a child. And he also had some some inter- interaction with Bill Gates and people of notoriety. <laughs> but Alec Murdoch was a person that came to him. This fellow said that he could see the future. He said that, that this was interesting, that he could see the future, that he could tell people's um, what they were going to be doing at a certain point in their lives. He was a child at this time. And he had asked me if he could come and talk to me. So I wanted to at least talk to him. To him. I had law enforcement come with me. And he did drive from North Carolina to Walterboro. And I'll try to shorten this up a little bit. But the day he came, he was a very pleasant young man. And he was probably in his 30s. And he did come into the courtroom for a short while. And um, he was just telling me about his experience with Mr. Alec Murdoch and that he had foretold Mr. Murdoch that something like this was going to happen in his life. I mean, he said it very specifically. And I don't know whether he was telling the truth or not, this gentleman, but. Wait a minute. I want to get back up. This is crazy. So you're telling me this guy, this adult guy comes to you and said yes. he talked to Alec Murdoch when Alec Murdoch was a kid. Well, when he was a kid, Alec came to him probably when he was in his 20s, it sounded like. Okay, so, but long before all this stuff, and this yes. this guy oh, says to Alec Murdoch, yeah. someday you are going to 
kill people. He said that he was he was going to be married and that he was going to he was going to have two two children and he was going to kill one of the children what? and his wife. That is crazy. I, I think if Alec had heard that it's from somebody, almost, I might have mentioned it. It's almost unbelievable. Yes, yeah. it is. It is. Well, he said this would have happened in about 2000 or 2001. Wow. Well, you just mentioned that you're writing a book, which is called Behind the Doors of Justice. When did you right. decide to write a book and when will it be out? Tell us about it. Okay. I I think I first got the idea to write the book when we were pre- preparing for the trial about four months before January of 2023, when we heard that the judge had ordered the trial to be uh, fast-tracked and that it would be held in January. So we did a lot of preparation here in Colleton. We met with law enforcement. We met with city officials, county officials. Everybody came together so well. And in, in bringing the food trucks, we knew that we were going to have a lot of people here like we had never seen before. And that turned out to be so true. But it was done so well. I think it was a, a class act um, with how everything was represented. So with the book, um, I kept copious notes during the trial. Um, and the more that the trial went on, I could just tell that there was such a story to be told behind the doors of what was going on. There were so many things like the egg lady and how, what about those eggs, you know, <laughs> and more into the story of what was going on there. Um, so many things with the judge, with the people that came in the crowd, the crowds meeting at three thirty in the morning sometimes, um, and different things that went on with the media and, um, just some good, good stuff that we had going on. So it, the idea came, and when the trial ended, I took two weeks off and to wrap my head around life and getting back to a normal kind of pace. And on the third week, I said, I really need to put this mm-hmm. into writing. And that's when it happened. I connected with Neil Gordon, who lives in Augusta with his wife, Melissa, who's a photographer. And she had been to Colleton, and I met her on like the second to the last day of the trial. She and I immediately bonded and we exchanged names, numbers, and she was telling me a little bit about her husband and the business that he was in. And so we connected about that third week in March and the the idea for the book became born. And I wrote furiously from the end of March until June, probably June the 1st. So the book is in the process of being um, produced and published. The Due date for it is August the 1st. Oh, wow. It's coming up fast. Yes, it is. It is. It is. The You just mentioned a minute ago, so we could go back to that for a second, people arriving at as early as 3 a.m. and you weren't open, the courts didn't open until 9. And I think they said, don't camp yeah. out. You were not allowed to camp out. Right. They didn't. And they really didn't. They just stood in line or either <laughs> some sat on the sidewalk and some brought chairs. Wow. And... And they really develop friendships, I've heard, from standing in line with each other. Yes. Uh, now, when you decided to write this book and you started to tell people that you're writing this book, how did the the fellow court employees or attorneys or judges or what was the feedback from the community within that courthouse about you writing this book? Everybody wanted to know if they were going to be in it, (laughs) Um, but it was overwhelming. I'd say it was overwhelming, encouraging, and I've had a few friends, a few judges, a few 
uh, attorneys who were just just cautious about be, being an elected official and writing a book like this while an appeal is still in the process um, of being in the courts. Right. And so I've had to get authority from my uh, South Carolina Supreme Court Justice, Donald Beatty, which he has given. I've gone before the Ethics Committee and I have um, something in writing from them that has told me that they allow this under certain conditions in which I have to follow. And so I've reached out to other people that are elected officials and talked to them about the way they handle it as well. So I am, I'm trying to be very, very um, cautious and doing the right thing about putting things in my book that are allowed and what's not allowed. So speaking of judges, do you have a favorite Judge Newman story? I mean, people uniformly love Judge Newman. He was just such a calming person. Uh, I, I saw him many days walking around the block in Walterboro. Do you have a favorite oh, Judge yeah. Newman story? Oh, gosh, I have so many. But I will say, um, in, pre- in preparing for the trial, we would call each other all the time. And he would normally call me about 7, 30, 8 o'clock at night, and I'd be either cooking supper or washing the dishes. <laughs> and we'd talk for about an hour. And then I would, if I had to call him, I would call him in the morning time, and it would usually be about 7, 30 or 8. And we would be... Um, He'd be walking out on his walk. So it was neat how we had different times that we were coming together and talking. So that was before the trial and during the trial, too. But um, Mm -hmm. I think during the trial, we would take breaks. And he he brought his wife, his precious wife with him, Miss Pat, with him every day to the trial. And um, she was she's just she keeps him in line. She's a wonderful lady. So when we would retire to the back, we would all have food back there. And, you know, he's he likes to eat healthy and and not a whole lot of snacking and stuff going on. But Miss Pat would keep him straight on that, too, because his, his favorite was a peanut butter cup. And so <laughs> I would keep extra peanut butter cups on me, and I'd slip them to him time after time. But um, we had to keep that on the down low from Miss Pat. Um, so she sat in the back. She didn't she wasn't in the uh, in the courtroom. Miss Pat actually sat. If you're if you're up on the podium with Judge Newman, uh-huh. she would be to his left, sitting in the what we call the grand jury seating area where court TV was seated. Okay. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Hopefully so, she doesn't listen then, to this because she may be busted. And you may have busted <laughs> Judge Newman the, for the eating, eating the peanut butter yeah. cups. Yeah, yeah. I think I think she figured it out though. We had, he had a lot of his wrappers up there one day and. <laughs> She said, "I see what you've been doing." <laughs> uh, have you had you worked with Judge Newman prior to this? I have worked with him a few times as okay. as a court reporter. So I'm a previous court reporter, and um, I had the opportunity many times to work with him all around the state, um, in college and in Columbia. Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up, some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in. And you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. 
So instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories, you participate in dialogues, so you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now, and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. I have a question, side note question. The court reporter, I assume that's who it is, has that big giant yeah. thing that they put their face on. Yeah. You know, like it's like a yes. It's like yeah. it's almost like it's like an oxygen mask. It yes, does. It's huge. What what is that? <laughs> so this is the voice, um, the voice method of taking doing court reporting. You know, the stenotype method has been the old um way that we've done it for a long, long time and it's still being done. I mean, you can't dispute that. But with digital technology coming, you know, into our world, um, the voice method has made it possible. Um, train your dragon. I don't know if you've heard that that philosophy. No. Um, that's a, a software that the digital um, system uses. And so you have a computer, you have the mask that you put up to your, your mouth and it does look like an oxygen mask. And sometimes you do need one but it actually is taking down whatever you're speaking and putting it up on a screen on your computer. Are you repeating what you're hearing the judge and people? On, uh, you are. Yes. You have to really oh, be good at multitasking. Yeah. Wow. But you are taking down everything do everybody is saying. That's why the judge, you know, wants to maintain order. That's, that's why we want attorneys not to speak over each other. Okay. That's why we want witnesses to speak up. So, Yeah. The court reporters. That is a, a technique that I'm assuming you have to spend some time learning because to keep up with, depending on how fast the person's talking, and I noticed it now that you mentioned that, because I remember Judge Newman a few times, and I wondered why he was doing it. He was like, ask a couple of the people who were uh, testifying. He said, can you please slow down? And I, I, right. I wondered why right. that was, because I'm like, okay, what? You know, that's how he talks. Yeah. But now I get it. Yeah. Wow, huh. interesting. I will tell you. The court reporter is really the most important person in a room to preserve the record for how it needs to be preserved. The judge is, is definitely the most important, but the court reporter kind of trumps that at times. Um, you, sure. you can't have a proceeding uh, without the court reporter. And the, and the person and the judges can't look back on that to see if there's appeal or this or that was done wrong, right? I mean, you no longer exactly. need to be able to type 250 words a minute, right? You have to talk 250 words a minute. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Right. That's cool. <laughs> I want to go to one of the big things that happened there, and uh, everybody was impressed how it was handled, the the bomb threat. Now, was it yes. something that you had practiced, like literally gone through the steps, or was it something you had in a meeting? Here's what we'll do if it happens. How, explain how that all played out. That is such a good question. So the bomb threat was something that we had prepared for in case we got one. Um, it's just in our internal methods and things that we should be ready for, just like a natural disaster. And um, we have not had a bomb threat probably in the last 25 or 30 years is what I've heard. So we had practiced where we would go. Everybody knew what to do. Uh, but the most important thing was knowing where to go. 
and getting the judge and the jury and the court personnel to the place that we needed to have them protected. So we knew that was important and that helped tremendously when that bomb threat came. And of course, a lot of us thought that the bomb threat came from came from someone regarding the the trial right and with the murdochs but it did not you know surprisingly it came from so we had other other departments and other family courts going on at the same time that we had the murdoch trial going on so business was operating as normal as we could in other departments so family court was going on and it was daddy day uh, child support day and so a prisoner from an inmate from Ridgeland had come over and had asked a friend of his to use the phone that they were allowed to use to call the college and county courthouse and say there's a bomb threat. And so huh. that is where that bomb threat came from. The, the really neat thing is, though, and this is in the book, the person, the friend of the inmate who was traveling to Colleton, the inmate tried calling for a good hour to a certain department. Well, the number he had dialed from his end was star 67, so they didn't know who was calling. Well, they won't pick up any number that has a star 67. That's just something my girls won't do. Hmm. So that fella called and called and called for an hour. Finally, after an hour, he went to another department where my girl did pick up, and that's when we got the threat the announcement of the bomb threat, she immediately told security. Security came to the courtroom and told Judge Newman. And that's when we all quietly and calmly yeah. it was very what calm. we were supposed to do. It was, it was. It was very calm. So wait, star 67, is that where you hide your number? Is that what that is? Right. Okay. Right. And they, they still figured out who did it, the big dummies. Uh, they did. They <laughs> yeah. did. Yeah. Be sure your sins will find you out. <laughs> <laughs> Well, tell us about what the community's reaction was to these crowds that descended upon Walterboro. I mean, how many media outlets and all these people who were lining up? What, mm-hmm. what, what was the community's reaction? I think at first, people in the community were very apprehensive. We didn't know what was going to happen. Um, people thought, I think a lot of people thought that it was just going to be chaos and a lot of confusion. It turned out to be so opposite of that. There was a lot of order. We had things together. Um, there were a lot of people that were coming into town that came downtown to the businesses that are here. They, they frequented our restaurants. Our restaurants were here to serve and to be open. And I think things were done so well. And I have not heard one negative thing from anyone. Um, and I think that shows such a good spotlight on Colleton County, on Walterboro. So I think by the time the trial was midway and even ending, the people of Colleton realized that, hey, we did a great job. They really did. They were so gracious. I mean, I didn't, no one was ever rude. And you're just thinking people Mm -hmm. are taking up their parking spaces. They were nice. Yeah. They were so nice. Let's get to Alec Murdoch. So how often did you interact with him? Well, on a daily basis, every time he would come into the courtroom every morning, he still addressed me as, good morning, Miss Becky. How are you? Now, you've known him? Did you know him and before this? I did. I did. I um, worked with him professionally as a court reporter. And I worked with him, you know, when he's an attorney coming into Colleton, um, even being in other places around the state. You know, we would get pleadings and stuff 
from the law firm. So I've known him for quite a while. Are you allowed to talk about his demeanor? What was his demeanor during the trial? And did it change as he got closer to the end? Uh, explain the vibe you got from Alec. In the beginning, I think he was very jovial. He was very, um, almost like he was an attorney there representing, an, representing another defendant. And then it, it began to get very, it began to get very, how would you say it, very uh, tense. Um, mm. The air got a little, little tighter um, when the prosecution brought out the fact that the Snapchat video um, gave a different story than what he was telling. Yeah. And uh, as the trial went on, things became more tense and uh, not a whole lot of talking there at the, the ending days of the trial. Um, and especially the ending days, it was, it was very tough. Just, just the courtroom was filled with a lot of uh, emotion. Mm. You were the person who read the guilty verdict and I was in the yes. courtroom at this. It was really surreal. How was that for you? Well, I um, it didn't hit me until I knew the jury had a verdict. And then I thought, oh, my goodness, I now have to read a verdict. I don't know what it is, but I hope it's the right thing. And I had to wrap my mind around that because I knew that it would be going out broadcast to around the world. And then Judge Newman and I had not talked about what I would be reading. Normally, um, the jury writes down their decision, their verdict on a jury form. and we just, we didn't have that. Judge Newman is old school and he used the indictment uh, that was Alec Murdoch's. So the four indictments I had to read. That's why if you go back and you look at the videos, you'll see a little bit of confusion there where I turn back around to him and he says, read it from front to back. And he tells me what to do because I always have a verdict form. And um, so I finally got the, the message and knew what I had to do. That's why I read all everything from top to bottom. I didn't want to miss anything or, or screw anything up. So once I got through the first indictment, I was ready to go on the next three. Is that the first time you saw the verdict was when you were reading them or did you see it before the everybody came out? No, 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 no. That's the first time. Okay. First it wow. goes to the judge and the judge sees what's written and then he hands it to the clerk of court. In your head, were you were you thinking, okay, millions and millions and millions and millions and millions, millions of people are going to be watching me read this, or what? You was that blocked out? At first, it was in my head, and then it quickly went out as I started doing my job yeah. and treating it just like I knew I had to, um, just like any other trial that we had. And I was in my it was in my role when I started reading the verdict and going from the first to the second to the third to the fourth. That's uh, and you could none of us expected it to be that come back that quickly. I don't think. I mean, we Seaton and I were like having a drink. <laughs> yeah, like, we were. We, and, we were. Uh, did you? I mean, you didn't expect it. I would imagine. We had heard talk that some people thought it was going to take all weekend. Yeah. Some people thought it would take into the next week. Some people thought it might even go two weeks. Um, yeah. I have to say that I had some interaction with my jury, and we didn't talk about the case, but I knew from questions that they had. And when we did the site visit to Moselle that next to the last day, we didn't have to say a word because everyone's eyes, everyone's quietness told the whole story. And it showed being there on that property. It's almost as if Maggie and Paul were speaking from the grave. 
that this is what happened. And we could feel it. It, it was just it was just a feeling in the air, in the wind. Um, so you so think that jury, was a game changer? I, I knew. That was a major game changer? I think that was. That was the top three in the game changing of the trial. Yes. Well, this trial lasted so much longer than any of us expected it to last. How did the jurors hold up? Were they getting fatigued at coming in for six weeks? I know they had to be tired. I do know that. But they were persistent. They were they were very bound and obedient to their job. They took, every one of those jurors took their job as a juror so, oh, what's the word? So seriously. They they knew that it was serious. I mean, yeah. they really paid too. good attention. Yes. They did. And I believe, I mean, I can't tell you what they did when they went home, but I know many of them said that they took the judge's order to be exactly that. Because he told them when they went home, they were not to watch any TV, not to talk to anyone about what had happened, not to listen to the radio, not to read the newspaper. And most of every one of them said they didn't do that. I believe them. Well, I'm going to go back for a second. You said top three. So you got uh, uh, there's Moselle Uh says one. What are the other two that you put on the on, on the list? Well, that, we might just say four. Um, so the Snapchat video came right out of the gate. Right. And I think the second one was the information about the vehicles and the cell phones. Okay. All of that information that you just can't argue with. That tells a tale that is specific to a time and where a person is. And then the, the third one, I would say, would have been the visit to Moselle. Yeah. But I have to say also the jury did not respond well to the defendant getting on the stand and testifying. Yeah, he did. That. They were really, really turned off from that. Yes. You could have had a good view of the jury, depending on where you were seated in the actual courtroom. Sometimes you could see them, sometimes you know, couldn't see all of them. Right. You see a lot of jury trials, I would assume. Uh, I do. And so can you always read a jury pretty well as to how they're, not necessarily the verdict, but how they react to testimony and things? Most of the time you can. Yeah. A person's, a person's, um, what would you call, help me with this word. Like their body language, their demeanor. Their like body their, language, yeah. yes, their demeanor. A lot of people can hide it, most can't. And mm. um, it's going to be very telling when a jury is for someone or not. How often are you surprised by a jury verdict? There's always that element of surprise. Because like- with the jury, you never know. It's always going to be a, oof, um one of those things that you never can tell. Yeah. So that's going to happen. Um, but I kind of felt in that, what they call that woman's gut, I kind of knew what they were thinking. Yeah. Um, and I had hoped and prayed that justice would be done. Well, I want to give a plug to your daughter because it was super cool. They had a media night yeah. one night and we went yes, and your daughter yes. performed and she was fantastic. Tell us about her Thank and you. where we can find her because I want to, Listen oh. to her music. Well, thank you very much. Um, Aubrey Hill is her name, and she's a fiery redhead. She's single, too. <laughs> and she's 32 years old. Why do you old. tell me that now? <laughs> <laughs> Where were you when she, I needed um, you? Can, yeah. Oh, <laughs> she's a really good girl. And she is um, working at Compass Cell here in 
Walterboro. She is their office manager and administrative assistant in real estate. And she can be found singing um, at different places uh, in Beaufort, Charleston, Somerville, Walterboro. And she will be singing, I think, at the Water Festival in, in Beaufort coming up in July. But she's on Facebook. She's on Spotify. She has quite a few songs on Spotify. And Facebook would be probably her biggest platform right now. What other one called? Um, Instagram, maybe. Instagram, that's it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there yeah. you go. I'm telling my age. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. Well, we just pulled her up on Spotify. There she is. And your book is oh, great, great. available for pre-sale. Is it Amazon? I can't remember. I've ordered it, but I couldn't, I couldn't remember exactly. So right now we have it on on um, the web, but it's behindthedoorsofjustice.com, and you can pre-order it there. So it comes out on Amazon August 1st. Okay. Uh, Becky Hill, thanks so and much. I, Appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Y'all are wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks. We thanks, appreciate Becky. you coming on. This has been really fun. It has been. Uh, Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. So speaking of books, I want to plug, if you need a break from true crime, my husband's college roommate wrote a book called The Success Paradox, and it's available on Amazon. It's really interesting. And one bit of advice he gives in this book is about being authentic to yourself, which a friend of mine gave me that when I started this podcast. And I think it's great advice. So if you're looking for a break from true crime, I'd recommend it. Uh, The name of the book and the author? It is The Success Paradox by Gary Cooper. Okay. So if you're looking for another podcast to listen to. Yes, very dun, exciting. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> uh, we have teamed with Michael DeWitt, who we've had on the show before. He's a journalist and a storyteller, and he writes for Gannett newspapers. You've seen his work in USA Today. Hampton native. Hampton native is going to be going through some of the cases that have happened in that area. He's going to be talking about the dynasty of the Murdochs, some really crazy crimes that have been committed. Sometimes the Murdoch's involved in uh, trying those cases, other times not. But uh, we are getting to it really soon. And I love Michael DeWitt's storytelling. He just has a gift for it. And so look for the new podcast is The Wicked South. Coming to your ears soon. If you want to reach out to us, it is Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. We're always grateful, and we'll talk. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Something is creeping. Don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorized financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing 
that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S.